My guest today is the global head of sales development at Awin. Here's what some of his colleagues say about him. Mike is one of those rare leaders who naturally leads with empathy, but delivers through strategy. His passion for sales, sales development and coaching produce high levels of engagement and consistently outstanding performance. Here's another one. His ability to take learnings from the day-to-day -day and use that to power innovation and transformation to drive impact at scale really sets him apart. Here's another. He is a calm, considered, and incredibly hardworking individual who gets the best from those who report to him. Finally, his passion for sales leadership bleeds through to the rest of the organization, and his motivation for exceeding targets is contagious. Mike Hamburg, you're very welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Well, I think that's definitely money well spent. So, um, <laughs> I haven't seen the check yet. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know that old lesson has to clear as well. Yeah, you got it. Well, this um, is unusual. Typically, I'm uh, much more familiar with being in the trenches and the spotlight. But uh, as always, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And um, my pleasure, also, my pleasure. I, um, I spoke with David Dulaney recently, and he said to say hi from Tenbound. Oh, um, great. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Tough so, uh, guy. Consider that my message passed on. Yeah, great stuff. Thanks, Mike. Um, where, I know you're English. I, don't, I have yeah. no idea. Where did you grow up in England? Because I, I, I can't place your accent. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I hide it well. I'm originally from Cornwall. Um, sometimes well, it comes you do. Out. <laughs> you hide that well. <laughs> yeah, I try my best. Um, yeah, I'm from Cornwall originally. So for, for viewers outside the UK, perhaps a, a rural southwest part of England, um, as far as as far as my background, I come from a humble but hardworking type family. Um, parents mm. were far from corporate or capitalist or even wealthy. Um, but they had me when they were probably younger than today's standards. I think mum was, uh, what she had been, 19, 20, something like that. Um, but yeah, they worked hard in different local jobs and stuff to provide. But we had an excellent sort of childhood, being able to spend time, even as an only child, um, you know, outdoors and in nature and as a kid I was always really curious around you know the, the world around me and the environment um, and yeah it was just a great place to be so I'd always be outdoors with friends um, in the ocean riding dirt bikes skateboarding clay shooting uh, what else in my slightly later years DJing as well um, but it was a really nice place to be but obviously as as I started getting older mm. it didn't really have the opportunity that I was looking for. And I was talking on that curiosity piece, quite curious to learn a bit more about the world I was in. Um, so I went to Truro College and that was my, I guess that was my gateway then to, to university. So I was the first person in my family to go to uni. So I went to, um, went to university in Bath, which is mm. where I got my, my bachelor's in graphic communication. And that's kind of my ancient history. So from okay. 2011, I guess, is my modern history when I reached London. Okay. But yeah, I guess maybe that's a place to pause. We'll get to the modern bit soon. And I want to talk to you about that. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the graphics, the graphic design stuff. You, you mentioned you were an only child. And I'm always fascinated by that concept and how it impacts people's personalities. I'm curious to know how you as an only child, how your experience was different, say, and what you noticed with some of your friends who weren't. Yeah, it's a good question. I think as an only child, you have to you have to be quite creative. You have to be good. I mean, it sounds a bit a bit too much of a link to sales, but you have to be a good communicator. Like people aren't necessarily going to come to you, right? If they're already in their family groups or their friendship groups, 
so you become quite good at uh, being able to persuade people so you might you know you've got a packet of sweets you stand next to someone and share it and then suddenly you're friends um and i think being able to have the confidence to do that and always be quite open to new people helped um mm. at times it's kind of you know it's kind of lonely in that you know i don't mm. have a massive family i had cousins and stuff around similar age but yeah there's definitely something in the difference of how comfortably i would just go up to people i didn't know and start talking to them Whereas a lot mm. of my friends that had, you know, they're in the hierarchy, perhaps like yourself, I think you're probably one of what, five or something. Um, you're yeah. kind of in that hierarchy of people within yeah. your immediate group. And it is just a different concept. Um, but yeah, I think there's a kind of like a confidence piece and just an mm. openness to communicate. Because if you didn't, you didn't really, you don't really get to speak to people or hang out with people mm. or play, whatever. Um, yeah. 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 Interesting. If I were in school with you, Mike, how would I just, how would I have described you? That's a good question. Um, f funny. I used to. I'm not sure if it was the the best thing for my school career, but my my, sc my school time. But but yeah, I used to um, be considered funny. Um, the the friendship groups I had were very close. I would have. I wouldn't say I was popular, but I made friends with a lot of people. Um, mm. But yeah, funny. I wouldn't say hardworking. That's definitely something that I learned as I got older. Um, mm. for me, I think, what else would it be? Probably curious. I'd always be mm. doing something new or introducing other people mm. to new things. Um, mm. I'm just trying to cast my mind back 2006, I guess it would have been when you kind of finish up secondary school and mm. within that school book, I think I was kind of selected and guessed at the first person that would own a nightclub. I'm not sure quite what that says about me, but that's that's somehow the category I fell into. Yeah. So yeah, so, yeah something like that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a question now, and it's gone straight out of my head. Um, oh yeah, I know what it was. You said that you, the hard work you worked in wouldn't have been considered hard working in school that came later. What was the catalyst for that? I don't think I deeply had a real connection or interest with some of the subjects at school. Like there was some, I was a lot more creative when it came to art and drama and that sort of thing, or creative writing. I was very engaged and I found that enjoyable. But as a whole, the mm. curriculum, I did, you know, I did good. I got my grades, but I wasn't, I was never top mm. of the class. Um, mm. Where that came from, I think, was probably if I cast my mind back to when I was a kid. So going back to your first question around growing up in Cornwall, for me, every summer, my uncle and auntie would come down technically my great uncle and auntie would come down um Shit, and my uncle money. richard so we came you know my myself my mum and dad we didn't have loads of spare money and my uncle richard would come down and i would always it was always quite a big event and he would always have a massive car and and bmws were his, his thing and i'd sit in the back of that and you know the space of it the size and i was like what is that like what's that smell oh that's the new car smell I, i'd never i didn't even know that was a thing um and he was he would always take me out and he was he was a senior leader at a large electronics company across certainly uk i think europe as well um and he was a big presence and like i looked up to him mm. my middle name is richard that's his name that's where it comes from and you know he was the sort of person that would always pass on opportunity to me and i think you know, often he'd take us out for dinner and he'd say things like, pick whatever you want. You know, if you don't like it, we'll just buy you something else. And it, 
that first of all put the stem of curiosity in me so i was like okay Mm. interesting i don't know what that even is but i'm gonna order that because that's that's why i don't know um and then he, he gave me a piece of advice once which was which was stay in education as long as you can and i appreciate this is a very long-winded answer but we'll get to the point and it always it always stuck with me and, and throughout school and then college and university i always thought all right although i'm not necessarily deeply interested in my earlier education everything else had to be quite mm. serious that followed so i worked hard and I, and I did my best the second that i finished and graduated university was my was my bachelor's i didn't want to do a master's i didn't want to do a phd i wanted to work and i wanted to earn money and for me it was kind of this weird turning point and that I actually felt quite disappointed I felt like I failed because I'd only stayed in education as long as a master's and then long story short and maybe we'll get to the transition later a few years later when I'm then working in sales and technology it dawns on me that his message about staying in education as long as you can wasn't necessarily formal education what he really meant was Mm. never stop learning and never stop learning Mm. about things you're interested in which to me was that catalyst to think, you know what, there is so much out there that I find interesting and I'm curious about and I like to explore. That's what I need to be doing. So I appreciate that's quite a long-winded answer, but for me... No, no, it's a great answer because it it actually answers a few questions I had for you, which who inspires you? And clearly your Uncle Richard was a a major inspiration and what motivates you, that sense of curiosity, exploration of the world. What I'm curious about now is... What are you looking at these days in the world that's catching your attention, that's, that, that you're really curious about? Um, for me, a big part of my role right now is, is certainly around coaching, mentoring and supporting others. Um, so that's, that's been a constant now since I've been in leadership, so probably about six years or so. Um, as far as things outside of that, technical advances uh, around AI and how we can use that to better support things like coaching and support and training, mm. um, that's a big one. Certainly not an expert in the field of AI, but it's something that's hard to ignore these days. Um, so yeah, something I'd say something around that. All right, I, I really want to come back to that AI thing because it's also catching my attention and I'm looking at it going, where are the applications for this? Where could it be advantage? Or where are the yeah. rabbit holes really where we really shouldn't be looking at? It? And I think sales is one of those fields where you have to be really cautious on that because you only have so much time. Um, but let's go Joe Goble back a little bit. I want to talk about your transition into sales because, well, let's start with the graphic design stuff first. How did you go from that to sales? Did you spend time, first of all, as a graphic designer and, and from there, talk to me how you ended up in sales? Yeah, this, this, is a, this is quite a pivotal piece, I guess, for me. I think I moved straight to London, right? So in 2011, that's when I came to London and I had the plan was 100% to be a graphic designer. That's what I trained for. I've always been creative. This is what I wanted to do. I cared deeply about it. Um, I was fortunate to pitch myself well enough to get some really interesting internships. And, you know, I did some some projects at the time that were extremely exciting. Did some stuff for Google, Nike, YouTube. Um, I was with Esquire magazine for a bit, working on the David Beckham cover. Um, it was cool. It was exciting. But there was a, there's a real difference between what I had learned in education and then actually the real world of what it is to be a designer. I was very much a perfectionist. That that definitely hurt me. I wasn't the fastest mm. creative. I wasn't the fastest designer. Mm. Um, 
there was also the fact that actually design you don't really spend much time with people i didn't realize it. if in my head it was you know a buzzing office whereby you communicate and people are the kind of lifeblood of the day but it's actually not you spend your time mostly clicking around the screen um mm. and gradually although i still wanted to do that because i certainly didn't want to give up it felt it didn't quite feel right um and also financially it just it just wasn't what i needed to live the lifestyle i wanted within london which is obviously an expensive but incredibly mm. exciting place to be mm. um so yeah, I moved, I moved away from that after some time, but a lot of people ask me like, what's the, how do you get there? I remember in the early days of interviews where I would turn up for a sales role and I would say, you know, my name's Mike. My previous background is in, in design. And the first questions would be, well, why on earth are you here? Mm. Like why sales? How, how did you answer? Um, the similarities are, are actually quite stark. So design, the concept of design thinking is basically the process of solving problems by prioritizing users. I mean, you could pick anything like my desk right now in front of me, there's a, a glass, a, a beer mm. glass. When this was designed, lots of discovery questions were aimed into this product. And as a team, mm. that's what the main forefront was, right? So things like, you know, who is it for in this case, craft beer drinkers? What is it? Per what is its purpose in this case to hold a 330 mil can of beer um you know what's the state of the liquid inside well it's supposed to be cold so the glass has a stem so you don't warm the product too quickly and how does it need to be manufactured um what material should it be you're going to be ingesting it so being able to see the product is healthy so you know you're consuming the right thing glass is recyclable so like any inanimate object that you see has been designed to a real degree with the user mm. by mind and then suddenly as if by magic, it solved a problem for a consumer and then provided revenue for a company. Just like in software sales, as a professional software salesman or salesperson, you're really that, you're going into deep discovery, you're becoming the trusted advisor, it's all about consultation, it's not about pushing mm. features or products. Mm. Does, it, does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And what I'm fascinated by is how did you know that? You know, I've worked with people, salespeople many years, and yeah. I've worked with people who've been in sales for years. And it's, it takes sometimes for them, it can take years for the penny to drop that sales is about solving problems, not about pushing products, as you say. Yeah. How did you know that when you were coming from the design, not having experience in sales, being able to make that uh, mapping of this design mechanics yeah. into what these leaders wanted from somebody it's it was quite serendipitous in that my first gig in sales was actually at apple so it probably doesn't need too much of an introduction but certainly at the time the world's most valuable company i'd used their product and hardware for years since i was at college um and understanding why i needed it as a consumer was not about it wasn't about the product at all it was about what did i need to do with the product mm. um and I was with Apple for a couple of years and a lot of the training and support that they gave was very kind of holistic and it was about purpose and it was about the customer and the consumer. Um, so I guess by having the mindset that I had already and then pushing those two things together, it just sort of made sense. I'm curious, Mike, because and I first met you, I'm going to guess, was probably what, 2013, 14, 15, somewhere, somewhere there. 15, 16. Um, have been, yeah. Okay. 
but you've always struck me as somebody who had a really wise head on young shoulders that you had an insight and, and what we're talking about now just backs that up and what I'm curious about to know is does that come from being an only child because one of the things you notice with only children is that their conversations mm -hmm. tend to be a lot with adults whereas if you're one mm -hmm. of several siblings you're off playing with them and the adult interaction interactions are far fewer yeah that's a really interesting concept um it's not something i've ever thought about before if i'm honest i mean potentially i had i had i guess growing up i spent a lot of time with my grandparents so my mum mm. and dad would be working a lot of shift work so they wouldn't necessarily know when they'd be working so it was a lot easier for my for my for my nana and my grandma at the time to look after me um mm. so certainly i had that influence as well um but yeah quite quite possibly mm. Uh, talk to me then about your transition from SDR to your current role because I knew you first when you were in SDR at exactly I was and um, I've been kind of following your online transition mm -hmm. but I don't know much about the details I'm always curious to know about the the the, the key I guess jolt when people go into leadership that they go in mm -hmm. with a sense of understanding of what it's about and then there's always a disconnect between that and the reality and then how they cope with with the reality and the lessons they learn from that talk me through no. that yeah for sure um a good place to start so i was at after apple i went traveling for a bit and sort of accrued some personal stories in that then when i came back i was like although i was a top performer at apple the brand name sells itself so much i wouldn't consider it a difficult sales role um so I joined a company called Interactive Space. So that's where I was an SDR. So that was a project management company within real estate. So fit out and build within London. Um, I was there for a year or so. And it was at that point where on my prospecting list, I thought to myself, well, you know, what? I can see a company called Exactly. They're growing heavily. This is when I was using LinkedIn for prospecting, which at the time was, was a reasonably new thing. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to, it looks like Tom Castley, Tom Castley from Who's, who's recently been at Outreach. Um, at the time, he was the managing director of Exactly. So I called up Tom, positioned the fact that I can see they're growing heavily. The products and services that we offer may well be a good fit. And to my surprise, he was like, well, I'll tell you what, really interesting point. Let's let's meet up and you can walk me through it. And I was like, well, to be honest, Tom, I don't usually do that. I just book meetings directly with my CEO so you can speak to him if you like. And I was like, no, you know what? This is an interesting an interesting concept it will help me grow I'm gonna go and meet Tom so I meet Tom at the original office at exactly which I can't remember where it was I think it was pre we work um, and he sits me down and we get a latte and and he says Mike you were spot on with your outreach we are growing and moving is massively on my agenda so I'm rubbing my hands together thinking oh excellent mm. and he says however you're two weeks late We've already moved. I was thinking, oh, okay, that's interesting. So, you know, why drag me all this way? Yeah. He scribbles on a napkin, slides it across and says, however, I would like to hire you. And I looked at the piece of paper and I was like, well, what's, what's that number? And he was like, that's the salary I'd like that's to That's so typical, Tom. <laughs> it's so typical, Tom. The amount of times I have to tell this story as well. But it happened, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it was just a pivotal moment of like oh my god SAS is interesting and my my salary has doubled if not tripled over a latte mm. 
Um, and that was how I got into SaaS at least. So, so when we met, I was actually the first SMB account executive for exactly in EMEA. Mm. And throughout my transition from there, it was, I guess, to get to leadership, it was after leaving, so short story, after leaving exactly, I was at a company called Church Desk, which is a SaaS provider. There's a niche for everything, but a SaaS, SaaS provider for the church. And I was a top performer there, long story short, promoted alongside peers, and then we just grew together and, and my role evolved heavily. But there was always this thought when I was younger that to be senior or to be experienced, you have to be a manager. So it was almost like I didn't necessarily plan it. I almost became an accidental leader. And the truth is as well, I think you don't actually, you know, the only route to seniority or success isn't actually leadership. You can also be very senior and successful as an individual contributor. But at the time, my philosophy, I just didn't even realize that. Um, mm. So I would sort of say, in some respects, it was accidental leadership, but also the core values of what drives me in leadership and and um, servant leadership is really core fundamentals that I live by every day. So it's the right place for me, but I didn't, I still can't tell if I planned it or if it was serendipitous. Mm. I, I can't get past the, why does a church buy SAS? Right, yeah, exactly. I think it's it's an interesting space, right? So there is a niche for SAS in, in every piece of the world. Um, it was it was Marcus Kauke, actually. Um, I spent some time with him as we were revising the pitch, because as I'm sure you can appreciate, you know, there's an irony here. And I think it's not quite the same as Chris Voss, but Chris Voss has a great line where he says, as the chief FBI hostage negotiator, his job was to cold call terrorists and sell jail time. Now, I wasn't that extreme, but what I was doing was cold calling the oldest institution on the planet and selling technology mm. of the future. Mm. And I think the most important piece here is we rarely talked about technology. We talked about them. We talked about what their challenges were. So like an initial, if I was to give them some sort of pain menu, it would be something like, you know, um, other, uh, you know, the, the three biggest challenges of the church right now is, is internal and external communication. You know, for other church leaders, they get into this as a vocation and quickly mm. it becomes an admin chore. Um, for others, there's a real challenge in attracting younger members to the community. You know, do any of these things feel relevant to you right now, Mr. Prospect, Mr. Priest, Mr. Mm. whoever it is, connection mm. to the church? Um, so yeah, it was always about them. It was always ignoring technology. Technology would come in later in the conversation. Um, mm. But yeah, it was, it was an incredible time. Like a really series A tech company it was a lot of fun. Very young, the average age across the company was probably 20s. Uh, as a business, we were backed by Mangrove Capital Partners, the same same backers of Skype and Wix and Walkley. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a cool place to be, and lots of lessons. Yeah. And of course, now you have something else in common with Chris Voss. You've both been on this podcast, so <laughs> there you go, you're in good company. I bet he didn't quote me, though. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the, the yeah, okay. That's Next fair. But, 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 but when your book comes out, <laughs> there you go. Because there's a lot of stories in there. Uh, and and I'm, we're not finished because I want to talk to you. Okay, so far we are on this transition. You said you mm -hmm. kind of accidental leader was partly designed, you know, your own belief that you needed to go there in order to advance. What I'm curious about is what it felt like when you went into it, what you had to learn, what, what you found difficult. 
yeah. and, and how um, they had to overcome. It was really challenging because I was promoted against peers and it was a it's just a bit of an uncomfortable position to be in. We were extremely close and to be honest, they were extremely supportive. But in mm. my head, it was like, I really have to perform, not just for me, but also for their own sake. You know, a small percentage of their life is now in my hands in the decisions mm. I make to support them, etc. Um, so I think there was a lot of fighting imposter syndrome, feeling like I'm not good enough for this role. Um, feeling like, you know, at the time when I started as a leader, I was a team lead. So I was an account executive carrying my own quota, which was mm. 20% of the team. And I was responsible for the success against target of the individuals as mm. well. So there's quite a lot of, quite a lot of pressure, quite a lot, of, quite a lot of weight mm. on my shoulders. But again, it's all about that supportive collaboration piece, being completely honest, communicating vulnerabilities, um, leaning on empathy, but, but keeping the balance right. I think mm. you can definitely not have enough empathy, but you can also make bad decisions by having way too much empathy. Mm. So there was definitely a lot of lessons in there for me. Yeah. I'm curious as well about the, you, you mentioned you were carrying a bag for a while. What did you find difficult to let go of? Um, I like that question because it's a different angle to what I looked at previously. Normally it was like, what do I want to take with me? Mm. Um, I liked sales. I liked closing deals. I liked being in the thick of it. I liked the chase. I liked to call people that had never heard of me before and take them from cold to curious and the challenge of, mm. you know, the world we were in at the time in particular. Um, but at the same time, that to me outweighed the other piece of it, which was, I don't, I don't even think I was familiar with the term at the time, but I, I, I would consider myself a servant leader. So from the perspective mm. of, you know, it's about me serving my team first, coaching and supporting and growing them. Um, and then leaning more into the concept of like, I think this was it, the concept of when the team does well, it's about them. And if the team do poorly, it was about me. Mm. And I think being able to leave my big focus on closing deals that I was doing successfully, dropping that and then just assuming that I can be a good leader and help people deliver their target was, yeah, it was in there. Yeah, that requires uh, an, an incredible, uh, not effort is the wrong word, but ability to put your ego to one side. Yeah, I think every company I've ever, that's not true. Most of the companies I've worked at, egos have not been some, it, the egos have been whittled out in the hiring process. Right. So I would say perhaps one of the things, I think I can say this without having an ego, but one of the things about me is I don't really have an ego. Mm. I think everyone does to a degree, but often sure. I can leave mine at the door and it shouldn't get in the way yeah. of other people. Like I'm very competitive, but, but typically I'm competitive against myself or against yeah. groups on groups rather than people, yeah. right? Yeah, I think that's the difference between people I would always describe as having a big ego versus a strong ego. Big ego mm. is like a balloon. It can burst and there's nothing there. Strong yeah. ego can, you know, can take being put to one side and you pick it back up and it's still solid. Yeah. Um, tell me, I want to just move on a little bit and talk about the current field of sales in 2023. So much has happened in the last few years to mm. disrupt, reinvent how sales is done and as things like AI come along as well, that's just going to muddy the field even further. Mm -hmm. And so it can be very confusing. 
First off, I wanted to ask you what's gra well. You said so. I was going to say what's grabbing your attention. You mentioned AI. Um, so I'll come to that in a moment. Tell me mm. first of all, as you look kind of at the six months ahead, what are the, the kind of challenges that you see facing sales leaders? Because I'm aware also you're a member of a number of different organizations where you guys come. You know the 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 pavilion and and yeah. Uh, or they used to be called well, it was the Revenue Collective that, that group. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I'm sure I, you hear a lot from from others as well as to some of those key challenges, and I'm always curious to know how they're evolving. Yeah, totally. I think I think from from some of the conversations I've been having, like we look at the economy, certainly in the space I'm in currently at Awin, whereby consumer behaviour impacts heavily on the revenue of our best customers. Um, but I feel like a lot of a lot of the, the general populace is kind of looking way further ahead and trying to, as you said, reinvent a lot of things. Whereas I feel like the communities I'm in at the moment, we're actually talking about just boiling it, ironically going the other way completely and boiling it down to the core fundamentals. So like, is our, is our sales outreach as strong as it can be? Are we genuinely spending most of our time with dedicated ICP type prospects rather than thinking, you know, what, fandangled and fancy shiny technology can we use to try and break a habit that we've already had in the past um so i feel like it's it's almost more like simplifying um mm. simplifying things that you know human beings are very are very good at overcomplicating. it's extremely yeah extreme, simplicity is that ultimate sophistication and i think sometimes it's so easy to almost forget your sales basic skills and rush off into the hills to try and find some new silver bullet and actually, you've kind mm. of had it before already. And then it's just about saying, well, actually, let's just be hyper consistent. So a, a, a subject, a kind of mantra, a credo for this year that we're focusing on is something we've called radical accountability. So we all know what accountability means. Um, mm. Radical accountability, how we've defined it is, is the, I'm going to read this out because it's a bit wordy, but it's the utmost assurance that an individual or group is consciously accountable for every and all actions towards a shared goal. So what we're really saying is we're bringing the team really tight in on themselves and we're looking at reflection points and we're going to look at every single day and be like, was I 100% accountable today? Were all my actions pushing towards helping the boat go faster? And if that's the case, and if we can genuinely look at each other and say our sales fundamentals are on point, we're hyper, hyper accountable, then we can start looking forward for more innovative and interesting ideas and technology, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I'm wondering as well how much of that, that when you talk about, I can't remember what the term you used, but it was about kind of, John Major used the term back in the day when he was <laughs> prime minister, he talked about going back to basics. Mm -hmm. And that was a reaction to a world that was getting more complex and mm -hmm. where sometimes things, systems can get out of whack. It's like, you know, planet's been knocked out of orbit and you want to kind of okay let's just go back and, and and it's and it's a way to simplify the complex in in some in some respects in other ways it's a way to control what we're familiar with mm -hmm. um and or at least feel in control so i'm uh, what i'm wondering is is that let's call it back to basics mm -hmm. focus more a reaction to a market that has there's been so much it's such a short space of time i've never seen the likes of it turmoil right totally. whether it's economic whether it's you know war in europe whether it's 
uh, AI, there's there's just a, the, the pandemic, all of these different things. Yeah. Uh, there's there was the, the massive massive crazy investment uh, where VCs were just pouring money into startups, which then completely disrupted demand and expectations of SDRs, for example, in the world in terms of what they uh, what was available to you know there was people being offered crazy money. Yeah. Uh, and, and so all of that is happening. And I'm just wondering how much of that is just a, a way of saying, look, I, I, I can't get my head around all of this. So let's go back to what we do understand and what we can control. Yeah, I think there's a part of it. Um, I think uh, I think the control piece is important. I mean, I see in the in the corner of my little window here, there's a house plant. The second it gets too big, what do you do? You cut it back and control it a bit more. Um, and I think there's a part of that that happens with, with teams and there's a part of that that happens certainly in the environment. I think you've made an extremely strong point in that the past 24 months, there has been so much chaos and so much uh, uncertainty and, and, if, and you look at the market right now and there's a lot of people being let go and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I think, I think boiling it down, that simplicity piece um, probably comes from a place of control. I think mm. certainly in our team, there's more speaking within my team now than the wider community, but there's a focus on looking at the things we can and can the things we can control and the things we can't control and then mm. looking at what our main goal is and how do we find the fastest and simplest route to that success mm. um slightly rambled answer but i think no it, no it isn't actually because i i i i agree be, you know sales is a simple business at the end of the day mm -hmm. i think you're right i think we overcomplicate i think there's often the promise with sales tech that there is this magic silver bullet out there. I remember years ago, a guy was pitching a CRM and he says, this will increase your sales. And I'm kind of going, no, it won't. Mm -hmm. it, it'll help you maybe be a little bit more efficient with your time, but it won't, it won't add a single dollar to the bottom line. And so yeah. I think there was a lot of hype and promise with some aspects of that as well. And I'm not picking on just CRM. I'm just anything that was kind of a, a, a way, I think as humans, we have a tendency to always look for shortcuts. Yeah. And in sales i don't know that they're shortcuts there's efficiencies don't get me wrong mm -hmm. like online linkedin tools like that are fantastic yeah. um i think especially now as well like with yeah. so there's so much noise i think i feel like if i look at the most successful people on my team and there's always a good consistent bunch is 90 percent mm. of their success in fact that's not fair a big proportion of their success is coming from them just not being distracted they're really in mm. You know, we talk about attitude, behavior, and technique, and their attitude is so strong, they ignore all the noise, mm. and they solely, religiously focus on the things that they need to do to get closer to target. Yeah. And there's something else as well. There's an instinct, and you, you showed it there earlier when you said, when you, and I wrote it down, you said, I called up Tom. I, I look online and I see people, and you know, a lot of people being laid off at the moment where there's this retrenchment. Yeah. And they're, you know, they have the little, I'm open to work. Well, that's not going to get you anywhere. I'm sending out CVs. That's not going to get you. If you're a salesperson, why are you not picking up the phone and calling a hiring manager? Yeah. And that hiring manager may not have a role, but they'll know somebody maybe you should talk to, or you'll learn something from your conversation. Yeah. And, and we know all outbound creates inbound. It's the same just for an individual as it is an organization, right? Exa exactly. And, and I don't understand why that's happening, but maybe that's a topic for a different day. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were a perfectionist. How has that helped you and impeded you in your sales leadership role? I think 
that's a, for me it's been one of the toughest and longest lived lessons so as I can I can think the second you ask that question I can think back to art class when I was in secondary school I used to get so frustrated if I couldn't perform a certain part of a discipline because I didn't do it right even though yeah. I considered I'd only been doing it for a few weeks rather than the masters spending a lifetime yeah. um over the past probably seven years or so I've I've been aware of it I think that was the main thing being consciously aware that that was one of my weaknesses and then mm. what I what I look at now is resounding victories re resounding victories tend to be that that result of small incremental advances and improvements sustained over a long period of time so to the pursuit of perfection is fine but measure on progress there's a book i'm mm. reading at the moment by um dan sullivan called the gap and the gain which talks about a lot of successful people always have a plan they always have a goal and they always benchmark themselves about mm. around how far they are from it rather than mm. how far they've come already right. and i think just having the mindset shift of looking in the mirror and saying well actually look at the progress i've made over the past week six months mm. year five mm. years since school mm. um yeah but it all came from a, a piece yeah. of reflection and just being aware of it yeah. interestingly by the way perfectionism is a firstborn characteristic and and eldest oh, sorry it, uh, only children are like firstborns on steroids. So they <laughs> say. Right. It, yeah, interesting. It, it's an interesting book uh, called Birth Order. Fascinating insights into it. Again, like mm -hmm. a lot of things, it comes with all sorts of health warnings, as in these are generalizations, but uh, it is quite interesting. Um, cool. Yeah. I, you mentioned AI earlier, and I'm just conscious of time, but I wanted to spend maybe two, three, four minutes on this. Then. As it's as it's unveiling, and I was familiar with some of the art type AI tools, mm -hmm. and I played around with them, and now ChatGPT and the competitors of theirs, although that seems to be the the tool de jour. Um, it's fascinating when you see it. You're a creative. That's why I'm asking you. Particularly, your mind must go into mm -hmm. hyperdrive on how you could use something like this to generate efficiencies and my fear always with this is that somebody will go okay uh write me an email for uh, this type of prospect and they'll be lazy and use it to use that mm -hmm. what 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 are your thoughts and fears for the technology really good question i feel like ai i feel like creativity as a whole is something that is extremely powerful when it's in its simplest form. And I feel like AI will allow quote unquote non-creatives to become possibly fakely creative. So I think something, I don't, don't quite remember where I heard this, it might have been one of your previous podcasts, but I think you'd referenced uh, Stu Heineke, is that his name? The mm. illustrator mm. and the way he uses his own illustrations mm. to drive interest in prospects. Wouldn't mm. it be interesting if a tool could create something for someone i mean it's probably a bit of a trend and it would probably die out quite quickly but being able to have that power is quite interesting but again yeah. on the flip side of that it's about is that just making people lazy is that just making people lean on technology rather than yeah ability on their own yeah. control process yeah i'm not convinced it is for for this reason is that the hard work part is not now that you have the tool that you could create a graphic that's mm. actually not where the hard work is. The hard work is, you know what, I've now got to print that out, package it up, send it, and follow up with a call. <laughs> and 
and that's to me is is where people fall down. Uh, and yeah, then there's yeah. the other side of it as well, which from a creative point of view, I saw a fascinating experiment done with two designers, and this was using, it was one of the image-based AI tools. I can't remember the name of it. <clears throat> and uh, one was a graphic designer and the other one wasn't. And they said, could this turn a, an amateur into a professional? And so what they did was they, it was quite interesting. They created two different, they were given a brief and given half an hour to create this or fulfill this brief. Mm-hmm. And then they, uh, without any help from AI. And then they, the same brief, again, half an hour with an AI tool. And what could they create? And they put them out on to a large database, Twitter users, and said, vote for which you, which. And it was interesting, in both categories, the graphic designer won hands down. Mm-hmm. And what it put it down to, now, the, the non-graphic designer got a lot more scores or did better. I mean, their, their design using AI was much better. But the dis, what, they, what, they, what they discovered, and I think this is really true of tools like ChatBT as well, is that mm-hmm. the designer is able to imagine the right questions to ask. Mm-hmm. And the AI tool just speeds up the process. Whereas the yeah. non-designer doesn't even know the right questions to ask. I mean, you, you can imagine that as a graphic designer in terms of perspective, shadow, light, angle. Um, you know, you, you would have a, an image in your mind of the end result mm-hmm. uh, where somebody like me wouldn't or might have a, a much muddier, unclear version of it. And therefore, the tool is not going to be able to help me as much. So yeah. I, I'm, I think there's an aspect of that in it. But I do, I do wonder where it'll go in terms of maybe research mm-hmm. where you could ask a, an AI tool to give you uh, uh, stats, projections uh, from company reports and, and yeah. build a projection of where they're going to go if they don't change or if there's an like do scenario planning for, mm-hmm. for them. I mean, that used to be a thing, but would take days and cost th- hundreds of thousands of dollars for top executives to go into an office and do it. Now I'm sure an, an AI tool could go, well, what if the price of oil doubles? Um, mm-hmm. What if, the, you know, you could imagine all the different things that an AI tool could scenario plan in seconds. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm talking like off the top of my head here. I, I haven't said it sounds like a whole this. podcast episode in itself. It, it absolutely is, actually. Uh, funny enough, a friend of mine is going to start a podcast on AI and where it's going and, and its applications in all these different fields as well. But I think sales is, is, is a good one. Um, that said, we're, we're, we're coming up on time, uh, Tom, and I wanted to ask you just a couple of other uh, kind of personal-ish questions. Uh, mm-hmm. Things like, what, what, what do you do to, to unwind and relax? Good question. Uh, I like to be outdoors. I think for me, that's my, uh, that's how I, I'm, I'm an introvert by, by default. Like I'm, I'm not mm. shy. But being around mm. other people, having conversations, I find exhausting. Um, mm. So certainly on a weekend, out hiking, um, snowboarding when the season's right, cooking, clay shooting where possible. Um, I don't play an instrument, but I've always been a keen DJ. Um, that's something where I found a lot of my time, certainly growing up. So I only play vinyl. Um, typically the genre will be funk, soul, jazz, reggae, hip hop, all that sort of stuff. So I'll, I'll spend my time focusing perhaps again that's the creative side um but yeah yeah and, and i'm curious about the vinyl thing is that just it's just a it's it's an identity thing uh, it's just something you have this uh, emotional attraction to like i might have say with film photography versus digital but right. if you were to put the two side by side you wouldn't always be able to tell uh, can you tell no i can't tell to be complete 
that's that's not entirely yeah. true. There are certain there is, and I can't even think of an example, but there are, there are certain experiences where I yeah. can tell. But for a lot of the, yeah. for for a lot of it, I feel like, and you you might have to have special equipment, right? So it's about having monitor headphones. It's about having a certain setup. Yeah. Um, but like in general, I think even digital music these days is pretty good. I've always I've yeah. always liked vinyl because it allowed me to be different. So when I was playing mm. out, people would be like, "Hey, look, that guy's using vinyl." It allowed me mm. to be creative. There was a kind of mm. There's a sort of pressure you put on yourself in the digital music. You can create your playlist before you go out. You press play and you sort of stand back. And I think mm -hmm. um, I used to I used to ask people uh, of all the senses, right? So uh, sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, which is the most important for a DJ. And nine mm -hmm. times out of ten, people would say, "Well, it's hearing, obviously." Mm -hmm. I wouldn't agree. I think it's actually sight. Because when you're playing out, when you're DJing, you don't want to be thinking too much about your equipment. You want to be looking at the room. Typically, mm. you're going to see who's tapping their foot, who's nodding their head. And then you start to play to that person or people. Then they start to get up and start to build the atmosphere. And then you look around the room. So it's all about, especially music these days, production is so good. You can be a good selector, but still build incredible evenings. Um and yeah, there's, there's something there to, to explore. Now, there is something in it, and I don't know what that is. And I can imagine that there's a connection between when you're watching that at some subconscious level, you're processing it, and then you're selecting this physical product that you're touching as well. And yeah. there's a, a process. Because I, I experienced that as well with, I know it's far more efficient to use mm -hmm. a digital camera, which I do at times, by the way. But, yeah. but I love the idea of taking a film out and developing it in a tank yeah. and then scanning it in. And it's so inefficient and more expensive. Mm -hmm. but there's something about the connection with the process that, and yes. I think this has this has there's a sales some lesson I don't know what it is in there as well because often we try to automate things mm -hmm. uh, in sales and really it's the it's the experience the interaction the conversations the touch points that make the real difference where some of those things we could automate but it takes the it takes the humanity out of it. Totally, yeah. um, especially after the past couple of years we've had. Right, when was the last sales meeting you had face to face? And when you did, it was a big yeah. event. It was like, oh crikey, we're going to yeah. shake hands. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, two final questions: Desert Island. You are a lot. Now that you said that, I think I might have a stab at your answer, but I'll leave it to you. <laughs> um, you're you're going to be marooned on this desert island. You don't know if you're ever going to be rescued. What Oof. one object would you take? It can't be a person. It's not going to be something I've mentioned. It's probably going to be a fishing rod. It's definitely going to be a fishing rod. Interesting. Why did you pick a fishing rod? I mean, to be honest, my fishing career is awful. However, it allows me... Is There's a discipline. If I'm going to be yeah. there a while, I've got a lot to learn. There's a part, there's a piece of it which is around observation. So I can take my mind yeah. off of where I am because I'm assuming being on my own yeah. for the rest of days is probably not the best thing. Um, yeah, I know, so I can feed myself. Okay, very practical. Yeah, it's interesting that actually. I think yours bridges, but a lot of people answer with a practical or something is to entertain them, like they could say a football. Not very <laughs> practical, but it's 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 entertaining. <laughs> um, actually, I, I I said two questions. I'm going to ask a part B then. That means I don't like I still maintain <laughs> it's two questions. <laughs> if your if your if your house were burning down, and your family are safe. Your if you have uh, your your phone, obviously that's fine. If you have any pets, they're safe. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and they said to you, you've got time to run in back in and grab one item that's in your house right now, what would it be? It would be, God, this is going to sound like an unusual item. My my pair of Swarovski binoculars. Ooh. Why? (laughs) That's a a unique one. Yeah, so the team, if the team are listening to this, which I'm sure they'll probably get a link at some point, they'll know that during lockdown, while I'm outdoors, I've also, um, I'm going to regret this, I've also taken up bird watching, not as seriously as it might sound, but from the context of, for me, finding meditation and discipline and observation. And I need that. And don't get me wrong, I've gone quite high level, the nice ones, but yeah, probably that. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, I, I get that. I, I started doing that as well during lockdown, uh, but it was, it was with a camera with a long lens. Yeah. I'm not a bird photographer, but it's just a, it's a way of just engaging your brain and, and, and mm-hmm. ch- going after something and cataloging. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, okay. And then final question. When your time on this planet is done and there's a book written in your honor about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? Um. I guess the focus of it is something around the idea of life can be a series of adversities. Um, and each one puts you in the opportunity to either behave well or badly. So maybe something as simple as he always did the right thing. I like that. And that's a great place to end it. Cool. Mike Hamburg, thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Paul. Thank you.